0: Let's stand up, let's pray, and we'll jump right into the scriptures this morning. Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for your healing presence. Thank you for your awesome power and truth. And I pray, Father, for the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of Christ be poured out into our lives, that the eyes of our heart be enlightened, that we may truly know the hope of your calling, the riches of the glory of your inheritance in us, and your exceeding great power that's at work in us. And we give you thanks for it. We bless it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You be seated. I want to talk this morning. We're talking about shifting our perceptions about God, and we want to talk specifically today about this theological word, biblical term called the atonement. The English word for atonement literally means, imagine this, at one (laughs) mint. I really want you to get that picture in your mind. The word atonement comes from the Hebrew word uh, is Kippur. How many of you have heard of Yom Kippur, which is the day of atonement, right? Now, the original Hebrew meaning of Kippur is to take a fabric that has been torn and to mend it. So you're talking about something that was once a singularity. Once it was one, it gets torn, right, or divided. And so atonement is to take something divided and make it at one again. Kippur. Got it? Now, this is important because the, uh, how do I say this? Like, when you say Christian, it's really a big word, right? Because there's, like, like Christianity is so vast and so diverse, but the early Christian idea or the gospel idea or the Jesus idea of atonement is at one minute. So let me just throw a couple of scriptures at you from john 's writings. Uh, I'm going to start first with John fourteen and verse nineteen. John or Jesus talking to his disciples here in John fourteen, nineteen and twenty. He says, "In a little while." I'm sorry, a little while longer, and the world will see me no more. But you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day, you will know. Everybody say no. (laughs) You will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. So in that day, you will what? Know the at-one-ment. I want you to notice very carefully, he did not say in that day you will become the at one That means to bring something that didn't exist before into existence. He says you will know the reality of what already is. So it's not about becoming one, it's about knowing that you already are one. You see it? He does it again in chapter 17. Ironically, around verse 19 or 20, I believe. (laughs) That's 16. That's why it's not there. 17. (laughs) Verse 20. I do not pray for these alone, meaning the 12, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That includes all of you. Yes? That they all may be one as you father are in me and I in you that they may also be one in us that the world may believe that you sent me yes come with me to first John chapter 5 first John chapter 5 ironically verse 19 <laughs> it says we know that we are of God And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And we know, everybody say no, No. that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true, in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Notice he does not say he is the true God and eternal life. Because the issue for John in verse 20, the issue for Jesus in the verses that we read was not the Trinity being one. In other words, father being in the son and the son being in the father and the two being one. The issue is (laughs) that we are as one as they are. So when he says this is the true God, here's what, what the this is, that you may know the true God and his son and that we are in him. And this is the true God, the collective, <laughs> the collective being made at one again. Notice in First John 520, he says not that it will come in. To being or into existence, but that you will come into the knowledge of what already is, that you will come into the knowledge of who God is as the true God, that you will come into the knowledge of who Christ is as his son and that you will come into the knowledge that we are also in him, that we are at one. You see it so that for the early Christians, this is absolutely true for the early Christians. It was all about knowing something. It was about a revelation. It was about coming into the revelation knowledge of something that had already been established by God. Coming into a knowing of who he actually is and coming into a knowing of who you are. Not trying to become it, trying to come into the knowledge of what already is. You see the difference? The Greek word for that is gnosis. So the idea was that by following Christ, you would have a gnosis of who God was and who you are in him. Are you tracking with me so that the entire gospel, according to the gospels in the Bible, can be summed up under the term at one meant. So that when 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 Jesus is saying that they may be one, he's not just talking about he's talking about unity on multiple levels. (laughs) Right. So here's the gospel. So the gospel is that whatever is torn between you and God, whatever separation there is, that it was mended and that you would come to the knowledge of that mending. You didn't mend it. God mended it. You would come into the knowledge of that mending. How come you guys are looking at me like, um, what is this strange new doctrine that we're hearing? <laughs> am, I, am I making sense to you? <laughs> now watch this. But we're also supposed to have inner peace, which means that the conflict within us is also resolved so that we become one so that we're not at war with ourselves. That we would love our neighbor so that we would not be in conflict with our neighbor, what we would become one and then take it so far that we would even love our enemy so that you have oneness with God. Oneness within and oneness with each other. That's the gospel. That's the at one You see it? Now, our modern concept, it is my contention and my conviction, that our modern concept of at one is not that, of atonement is not that, that it has become over the centuries something else. So here's here's my premise. You got to understand the early Christians, they were concerned about how do we come to the knowledge of our union with God? And because of that union with God, how do we treat one another? So the whole idea of giving to the poor, because giving to the poor was very important in the early, in the early church, right? Jesus emphasized it, and the church comes along and emphasizes it later. But, but the idea of giving to the poor was not just this sentimental thing where I feel sorry for them and I want to help them. It was flowing out of this concept that they were one, Read the book of Acts. They were all of one mind and one soul. And those who had an abundance sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And they gave it to those who didn't have. Notice that Jesus said, what's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God. Watch the at-one-ment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, and all your strength. In other words, bring all of your being into at-one-ment with love for God. See it? And love your neighbor as yourself. He did not say love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. But that's how we read it. Love your neighbor. It's more like this. Love your neighbor as though your neighbor was you. Because it's flowing out of the concept of at one You see it? And so that was the gospel. That was how they understood. That was how they lived. And their goal was to come into a greater realization of that oneness and that harmony with God. When you come into that realization of that oneness and harmony with God, limitations begin to flow off of you, begin to fall off of you, and you realize they are all self imposed perceptions. Because what can limit God? And if this is the true God, God, His Son, and you in Him, and in that day you'll know. That I'm in him, and he's in me, and you're in me, and we're in him, and we're all one. Where's the limitations? See it? So the idea was to come into a place of, dare I use this term, enlightenment, where you were no longer walking in the darkness of your own ignorance, but you were walking in the fullness of who you were. So uh, let me do it this way. Jesus, or the Bible says Jesus you know, showed us that God is light, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all, right? But then Jesus also says in another place, I am, referring to himself, I am the light of the world. But then he goes on and tells you, you are the light of the world. So the same nature that's in God is in me is also in you. He is light, I am light, you are light. Now, you don't hear this preached a lot of places in America today, particularly evangelical Pentecostal <laughs> churches. They, we don't talk about this kind of oneness. We don't. We don't. We we approach loving our neighbor from a moral standpoint, not an at one ment standpoint. In other words. Uh, I'm supposed to love Trent because that's the right thing to do, not because there's a true union that, is occur- that has occurred on a higher plane than what we can see and experience through our present conflict. So the idea of ascension is if we get into conflict, we can ascend above the conflict that's going on in the natural realm to honor the union that's happened at a higher level. And when we come into the knowledge of that, it will just change how we treat each other. We're not trying to do it from a moral perspective. And that's our problem in America and that's our problem in the West. We think that the nature of God, we say that God is love, but the way that we live, because it's embedded in our unconscious minds, the way that we live is God is primarily a moralist. He is primarily concerned about right and wrong. He is primarily concerned about good and bad. And you can take that on multiple levels. We can say he's concerned about right and wrong in the way you uh, live with your with, with, with let's see uh, the way you live ethically with one another. We can say he's all about right and wrong with that, like typical right wrong perspective, like the Ten Commandments. He's all about that. We say no 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 no, no. that's legalism that's legalism. So you don't have to live under legalism. You live by faith. So now we've got to be right. On Points of doctrine so we're right on points of doctrine about how you're saved because we come out of the protestant Reformation and the Catholics are wrong on their points of doctrine about how they are supposed to be saved So we're still looking at God through the right wrong lens. We're just doing it doctrinally instead of morally (laughs) You see the difference and so at, at its at its at its core, that's how the West views god and how the west views the gospel it's very deeply embedded remember jesus makes a comment maybe you know this maybe you don't he makes a comment to the religious leaders of his day who studied the scriptures and should have known who he was and he tells them if the light within you is darkness how deep is that darkness He's talking about if what you think is true, what you think is light is actually not true and it's darkness, how deeply embedded is it in your psyche? And the reality is, is that there is a collective, golly, sometimes I crack up at the way I language stuff. (sighs) There is a collective consciousness in the West of who God is and primarily he's a rule keeper. He's primarily concerned about rules, points of doctrine, and he and he can go to any... I'm not talking about what you believe. I'm talking about what the Western culture believes. He can go to any lengths to enforce that. So if you don't believe in him, he'll give your kids cancer so that you get down on yourself enough that you turn to him and get it right. Or if you did something really morally reprehensible, he's going to let you get, like how many of you remember, you know, when when AIDS was coming out in the 80s or whatever, the knowledge of that, that was God's judgment on homosexuals for the way they were using their body and he's trying to teach them something. And so here's our idea in the West is that is that God is so concerned about right and wrong, He'll use any measure to enforce that. Therefore, as Christians, we will justify any action that we take against those that do not agree with us on points of doctrine or those who do not behave the way that we think they should behave, so that we value our righteousness more than our relationships. And Jesus is saying the issue of that one is all about relationship. He established a relationship of one-ment, and now how should you live out of that union? Not how should you live in order to keep God happy, not how should you live in order to create the union, not how should you live from a moral or a right-wrong perspective, but because of the one how should you live? That is radically, that radically changes how we preach the gospel. That's not how the gospel is preached today. So let's look at how the western mind has been infected with innovative ideas that actually eventually lead us away from the truth of the scriptures, I believe, and, and, and to a false concept of who God is. That causes us to just, I mean, we will, we'll justify war because we're, because they're the wrong faith. What happened to love your enemy? much as you love yourself we will justify gossip because somebody disagrees with us we'll justify backstabbing we'll justify alienation if you don't believe me then just tell your deepest darkest secrets to your christian people in your life or whatever moral stuff you may have done that is under the blood or whatever but talk about that or talk about the doubts that you have in secret that you're afraid to share and watch how much they value relationship over being right Sorry, I've been at this a while, a while, like a long time. (laughs) I don't mean to sound jaded or cynical. So let's talk about atonement theories. So how did the church conceptualize atonement? Now, here's the interesting thing. In the first few centuries of Christianity, these points of doctrine were not the issue. It was how, because they had this understanding of atonement. How do we live together in community? How do we come to the knowledge of God? So there was very little written about the death of Christ in the first few hundred years of church history. See, for us, the atonement took place at the cross. But for the early church, everything about the gospel was atonement. Loving your neighbor was because of the atonement, the at-one-ment. Giving to the poor was because of the at-one-ment. Loving your enemies was because of the at-one-ment. Pacifism developed in the church. In other words, we won't fight, we won't go to war, we want all that stuff developed because how do I fight against myself? You see it? Paul appeals to the Corinthian church to resolve their conflicts based on the at one You are all one body in Christ. So that's, so they didn't, there was very little written about the cross. There were some Jewish people that were arguing with the Christians and some other enemies of the faith that would say, well, if, if Jesus is the Messiah, then why did he die on the cross? And they, they hadn't really wrestled with that question because that wasn't the issue for them. So they came up with, so somebody, I can't remember which church father, escapes me, I should have looked it up right before service. One of the church fathers came up with what's called the ransom theory. Now how many of you know, remember Jesus said, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but he came to serve and to what? Give his life as a ransom for many. And so when you think about the English word ransom, what's the first thing that pops into your mind? Somebody was kidnapped. A person is what? Held in captivity, and a ransom price will procure their freedom. So the early church fathers said, Jesus was a ransom. Well, who took humanity captive? Well, it was the serpent. It was the devil. It was the serpent at the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this fit in with the culture of the day, because remember, the 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 the, the, the pagan world, they hated their gods. <laughs> you got to understand, worship was not this, oh, I love God because he loves me so much, and I just want to pour out my love to him. It was not that. It was trying to deal with natural disasters, trying to deal with diseases, trying to deal with why your crops weren't growing and all this oppressive stuff that happens in our world and in our environment. They said all this is coming from the gods. Maybe if we make them a house, a temple, and we set a table and we sacrifice something so they have a little bit of food, they'll be happy and we can live our lives in peace. So they come along and say, yes, the devil has been holding humanity in captivity. And so God gave Jesus as the ransom payment to set you free. And one of the church fathers went so far as to say that God duped the devil, that he he made a deal with the devil. I know this sounds strange to you, but this was actually the belief of the church for a thousand years. We don't believe it anymore, and I'll show you why. But here's what they would say. God duped the devil. And, And here's what they'd say. The serpent... Through deception took humanity captive, so God, through deception, set them free. He gave Jesus, like an eternal exchange, I'll give you Jesus for all eternity uh, to you know, have in death, hell, whatever, and you give me humanity back, but then Jesus breaks out and raises on the third day. So God wins all the way around. And that satisfied the mind of Christians for 1,100 years. And now let's come back. This guy's important, uh, Augustine. How many of you ever heard of St. Augustine? All right, Augustine's important because he was an innovator. What's an innovator? An innovator is someone who inserts a new concept. His thing that he innovated was a doctrine called original sin. Now, here's the thing. You will not find a Jewish person who believes in original sin. But supposedly it happened in Genesis. Genesis. Now, say what you want to about Muslims, but they trace their lineage of their religion back to Abraham, right? You'll not find a Muslim who believes in original sin. You won't find church fathers for 300 years that believed in original sin. But Augustine doesn't read the Greek. Augustine reads the Latin, and he has a poor translation from the Greek to the Latin of what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 5. And he takes a verse... And reads it this way. He says that in Adam, the Latin says this, in Adam, everybody sinned. In Adam. And therefore, everybody died in Adam. And so his belief was, Augustine's belief was, everybody is born separated and broken from God. Everybody is born a dirty, rotten sinner. Right? Right? So he changes the perception of our nature. Because Paul, John says this. I mean, the Bible says we were created in the image of God. James says, how can you love God but hate your brother or curse your fellow man who's made in God's image? John said it this way. Christ is the light that's inside everyone who comes into the world in John chapter 1. So the Christian conceptualization was that you were the image of God, that never changed, sin uh, deceived you so that you would no longer experience yourself that way. But Augustine comes along and says, no, you're born with the nature of the devil. And you're so corrupt that you can't even choose God on your own. You can't choose to do good and you can't choose God on your own. So God, by His grace, empowers you to choose Him. Does this sound familiar to anybody? (laughs) Got it? So now the church is stuck with this idea, how do we get right with God? If we're born this way, how do we get right? See, the Bible was saying, you're already at one, you just need to come to the knowledge of it. But after Augustine, it was, we're not one, we're separated, we're rotten to the core, and we're opposed to God. How do we get right? Are you breathing? Then Anselm of Canterbury comes along, 500 some odd years later. And here's here's his problem. Superstition is starting to lose its hold on people. In other words, the ransom theory was acceptable to people during the time of the early church fathers, because everything that happened, every storm, every every disease was the work of the gods or of the devil. So it made sense then that Jesus is primarily dealing with the devil. But now the age of reason is starting to happen and so they're questioning those superstitions and, and some guys get wise and they come along and they say, look, why did, they start asking the question again, why did Jesus come and die on the cross? And they give the answer that the church had always given for 1100 years. He came to be a ransom for the devil. And they say, but that's deceptive. That's very ungodlike. To deceive the devil, because the devil didn't get to keep the ransom, because Jesus raised from the dead. You see the problem? So, so Anselm rethinks it, but here's his problem. He does what all of us do. He brings his worldview to the question. And in his world, his world was a, a European system of, think, think uh, almost like Braveheart, where you have uh, feudal lords, and then you have their subjects. Right. And primarily what was concerned, what what the the social concern was, the honor of the feudal lord. So so if you owned the territory because you'd been given it to you by the king or whatever, everybody that was part of your territory was your subjects. And their primary responsibility in life was to show you honor, to do what you said. So he conceptualized the atonement this way. He said, God is the feudal lord of all the universe. And humanity has dishonored him by sinning. Therefore, his honor has been robbed of him. So in that culture, if your honor was robbed, it had to be restored. How many have ever heard of honor killings? They still go on in cultures where honor and shame is the most important value. So if you slept with my wife, then you robbed me of my honor. So the only way that my honor can be restored is if I kill you. So I challenge you to a duel. Get it? So once that guy's dead, then my honor's been restored. See it? So the idea is then God lost his honor when humanity sinned. And so Jesus comes and he restores humanity to God by restoring the honor to God. Got it? That's called the satisfaction theory. He satisfied the honor of God. Right? Right? And the church is like, okay, that makes sense to us. This is now the position of Christian teaching as to why Jesus died on the cross. But they're still not that worried about it. You go to any Roman, you go to any Latin church, and even some of the Protestant churches, and you're going to find the crucifix a primary figure, right? But did you know it was not a primary figure in the early church? If you look at their art, it becomes a predominant figure after something happens in Europe that deeply affects the psyche of the Western consciousness. Any ideas what that might be? The Black Death. The plague. So the plague occurs 1346 to 1353. Now here's the interesting thing. Now watch this. Imagine living in a situation where 30 to 60% of the population is dying from the plague. That means every one in three. Or, more than 50%, more than every other person, somewhere in there, is dying just from the plague. Now, the plague wasn't the only thing that people died from. People were still having heart attacks. People were still dying of strep throat. People still had consumption. They still got scarlet fever. They still had accidents. They still died in childbirth. So you got one disease wiping out a third to a half of the population, then you have all the other death going on as well. So what becomes the pressing issue? What becomes the issue that presses upon the psyche of your European people? Death. How many of you know the song, the children's song Ring Around the Rosie? There's one school of thought that says that came, that was a a children's song that was taught to children during the Black Death. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Ring around the rosy, pockets full of posy, because the, the, the saying is they would carry flowers or posies in their pockets because the stench of death was so bad that they would, ashes to ashes, we all fall down. Isn't that a lovely song we still teach our kids? See how it's getting in the consciousness even of the children? So guess what? Now the church has to have an answer for that. So now, oh, Jesus died and Jesus suffered. So now the cross, the crucifixion, not even the resurrection, the crucifixion, the death of Christ, the crucifix becomes the central image of Christianity because it's answering the central question. How many of you have heard of indulgences? If you know anything about the Reformation, the Reformation got started because the church was doing what? Selling indulgences. Did you know that selling indulgences came around came about as the church's answer to the plague? Because the primary question on everybody's mind, what's going to happen to me when I die? Well, you're going to go to hell, you're going to go to purgatory. Or if you live a virtuous, saintly life, because we've already transitioned now into a moral perspective, away from an at-one-ment perspective, you have to earn your way through virtue. So one of the virtues that you had was giving to the poor. Or suffering or, or, or living a, the life of a monk. You renounce everything and you go off into a cave somewhere and you pray all day and try to live together and grow food and stuff and live off of just communion or whatever they were doing. You tracking with me? Well, what about all these people that have wealth? They're just as corrupt as the people in our society that have wealth. <laughs> okay, not everybody that has wealth is corrupt, but I'm just saying we're seeing that in our news. I'm trying to be culturally relevant here. So all the scandals, all that stuff. Sin, right, in Hollywood. Sin in Congress. Sin in the gymnastics world. Whatever, the Olympic world. You tracking with me? So humans have always been humans. So these wealthy people are like, well, what about us? So here's what the church said. They said there are people that lived such saintly lives. They suffered so much for the gospel that they not only had enough virtue to get themselves into heaven, they earned extra credit. And this extra credit is stored up in heaven and it's, and that's what indulgences were. And so if you want, so the church will be happy if you make a donation, the church will be happy to transfer <laughs> that credit from these saintly people who live to you so that you literally could buy your way into heaven. Martin Luther is a monk <laughs> and he's subject to the same passions like as we are. <laughs> Plus, he's got a he's got an OCD. He's got an obsessive compulsive disorder about his own humanity and whatever. And he's got all this stuff of self hatred that he writes in his journals. And so he hears that you are he hears a reading of the book of Romans that you're saved by faith and not by works, right? That you're justified by faith. So he comes up with this idea. Of justification by faith, but guess what? He's still working with the idea of indulgences because in his mind, here's how justification works. You don't need saints to earn extra credit for you because Jesus lived such a holy life, such a perfect life that he earned extra credit or he earned an indulgence for all of humanity. That is his righteousness. And you don't have to pay for it, you don't have to buy it, you simply believe. So that it's still a monetary transaction of faith, not money. So now I the indulgence is shifted from heaven to me when I believe, therefore his righteousness now becomes my righteousness. Do you see it? And he introduces, he innovates. He comes up with the idea of justification by faith. Changed the Western world, didn't it? John Calvin, a little bit after him. Now, Calvin was brilliant. Here's the thing about Calvin. Calvin was an Augustinian scholar, which was why I brought Augustine up. So here's Calvin's thought. Everybody's born rotten to the core. (laughs) That's why Jesus is born of a virgin because that rottenness is transferred by way of the man's seed. So Jesus opts out of that by being born of a virgin, (laughs) right? He earns enough indulgence for everybody, but God is really angry. So you're born in sin because now Calvin's living in a time where the modern judicial system is developing. (laughs) So how does God remain just... And loving at the same time he gives his son Jesus to die. So now you have his righteousness to get transferred, but also the wrath of God now is poured out on Jesus in order to make God happy. So at the cross, what's happening at the cross, God is being the recipient of the wrath of God and all his anger against sin. So if you believe in Jesus then God's no longer angry at you, and he transfers the indulgences of Martin Luther's Jesus to you. So now he doesn't see you as you. He sees you through his son. So, in, so Calvin, you're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. But here's Calvin's problem. He believes in original sin. You can't choose God for yourself. God has to choose you to choose him. This is what happens when you think too much. God has to choose you to choose him. So before the foundation of the world, he chose those that he was going to choose to choose him. And he chose those that he chose was going to choose not to choose him. Did, did I lose you? <laughs> so you still have to choose him. But <laughs> what'd you say? I wish you had. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you still have to choose him. But only he chooses you to choose him. So you're saved by grace. So no good works that you do. No good beliefs. That you do, none of that can help you. God has to put his grace on you in order to... Do you see how the economy of salvation is being worked out gradually over time? Now, we come to America. When I'm sure all of us in this room, I don't know how they teach it now, but I was taught about the founding of our country, and I was taught about these wonderful people that came came over from England on what? The Mayflower, right? And they were coming for Why? For religious freedom. Right. But we don't we don't really. But that's all I knew. I didn't really know who these people were, or what they believed. They were a group called from England called the Puritans. Right. And I know we want to think that the Puritans were just being persecuted for their righteousness and their religious whatever. But you don't know your English history. They were causing wars, bloodshed, all kinds of stuff. Because after all, if God is angry and can justify violence, and he chose you but didn't choose them, then you have divine right to perpetrate violence on those that are not chosen. (laughs) So get these violent people out of our country. (laughs) So they come over on the Mayflower. And guess what? They're Presbyterians. That's why, you understand, that's why the church was so opposed to abolition because God set a social order in place of slaves and masters and he chose before the foundation of the world who was going to be the slave and who was going to be the master. There's no at-one-man. That's how they could justify perpetrating violence on the native people because they, these, these people, God chose them before the foundation of the world to be heathens. He chose us before the foundation of the world to be the enforcers of his righteousness, to be the Puritans. sorry so the puritans come over so later on oh sorry so uh, calvin's idea of uh, the atonement was called penal and as in penalty penal substitution theory then you have jonathan edwards who is a puritan now this is when revivals start happening so so they're settling the 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 west what i mean not you know california but like around kentucky and areas like that right and they're all drinking and they're all carousing and they're beating their wives and they're just living like sinners (laughs) so you have these preachers that go around and they travel from town to town and they start preaching now if you just if you went to church even as a presbyterian You weren't really that indoctrinated in thought, Christian thought, right? You weren't really, especially if you were a working person that didn't have much education, right? So now you have a revival culture or a crusade culture where you have these preachers that are going to these small towns, and Jonathan Edwards being one of the most famous, and he's preaching a message, and he's coming in and saying, you are rotten to the core, and God is mad as hell. And you're like a spider go home and read it you're like a spider you can just google it you can read it for free you're like a spider dangling over the fires of hell and god is so disgusted with you that he'd just as much drop you in the fire as he would spare you why should he spare you and he would terrify people now we say it was the conviction of the holy spirit i'm not sure i think the idea of eternal conscious torment, because your creator is so angry at you, is one of the most traumatic, terrifying ideas that you can enter in, that you can allow to enter into your psyche. And it's why so many Christians struggle with anxiety disorders and OCD and all that stuff. But anyway, that's the message for another time. So the whole revival culture and the evangelical culture comes out of the Puritan culture. So that you only have to go back to the last century and pull up one of Billy Graham's messages and you hear the same thing. It's toned down a little bit and made a little bit more palatable than what Jonathan Edwards did. So by the time it gets to us, here's how the Gospels worked out. There's no at one There's only atonement. And this is what the atonement looks like. God has a wonderful plan for your life. Really? Well, how come my life is so difficult then? How come I'm not living this wonderful, abundant plan? Well, because there's this thing called sin that has separated you from God and made God mad at you. (laughs) Really? Well, what do I do about it? Well, because you're born in sin and you're rotten to the core, there's really not anything you can do about it. (laughs) You could live a perfectly sinless life and tell one lie before you die and... You're going to burn in hell. (laughs) Well, how do I save myself? You can't. (laughs) Well, how do I get saved? I'm glad you asked that question. Because Jesus came and died on the cross. And when he died on the cross, God took his wrath and he vented it upon Jesus. Right? And Jesus, but Jesus lived this perfectly sinless life. He got all these We don't call them indulgences now. He got all this righteousness. So if you believe in Jesus, you come out from under the wrath of God and all the righteousness that was Christ's gets shifted over to you. So now God doesn't really see you because he still doesn't like you. Because you're still kind of rotten. But he put the righteousness of Christ in you. So now he sees you through the blood. He sees you through his Son. He sees you in Christ. And Christian growth is you just need to pretend about you the same way God pretends about you. Just believe you're righteous because God sees you righteous and you'll become it. I've been at this a long time. (laughs) And you know what that does? That creates conflict because in that is the seed of self-rejection. You are not acceptable to God even now. God has to see you through His Son. Well, what about all this junk I have? What about all this conflict? What about all this stuff in my soul? What about all these lusts? What about all these urges? What about all these things? Well, that's the flesh. that's your sin nature so you have a sin nature and you have a righteous nature and and your righteous nature is this sort of figment of god's imagination because he knows that's not how you really are but he sees you in his son and if you'll just do the same thing i'm being a little facetious i'm trying to shock you i really am so i'm kind of creating a straw man yes i get it but are are you, you you breathing So I try to be this, but I'm really this, but God's rejected this, so I have this war between the flesh and the spirit. So then I'm told, well, you've got two dogs inside of you. (laughs) And they're both hungry. And whichever one you feed the most is the one that's going to win. If you feed the flesh, the flesh is going to win. If you feed the spirit, the spirit's going to win. Anybody, am am I talking to the wrong crowd? Yeah, that's in the Bible. (laughs) So... There's a guy. So so kind of the term that has been used to describe a more biblical view of at one minute is the term Christus Victor. Now let's just look at a few things in Scripture. Now you see how this measures up. Let's start in 2 Corinthians 5. We're just going to look at a couple of Scriptures. Because if you're going to talk about this, you have to deal with 2 Corinthians 5. 2 Corinthians 5. Actually, I like it in the NIV better because it's closer to the original. Second Corinthians 5. And let's do um, verse 16. Let's back up to verse 14. <laughs> For Christ's love compels us Because we are convinced that one died for how many all he didn't say all believers He didn't say just those chosen he didn't say just those predestined if one died then all died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Now watch this. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And didn't say we don't, don't regard each other. He says we no longer regard anyone from a worldly point of view. This is in your Bible? Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, watch this. That God was, I don't like it. Yeah, was reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Or the King James, New King James says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not counting people's sins against them. That gives Pat Robertson a real problem. That gives Jerry Falwell a real problem. That gives a lot of Christians who meant well down through the ages a real problem. Because how can AIDS be an epidemic from God because of people's homosexuality? When Paul said <laughs> <laughs> when Paul said God's not counting men's sins against them. How can we stand up after events like 9-11 and say this is a judgment of God on a sinful nation when God is not counting people's sins against them? How can we say God's judging you, trying to teach you something when God's not counting people's sins against them? How do we do any of that stuff? And He's committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making His appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, you be reconciled to God. Do you see it? Let's look at one more. First John 2. And then I'll, I, I know I'm torturing some of you. The torture will be over. I'm kidding. I just... Looking at your faces. First John chapter two, verse one. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole World, What was it that John the Baptist said about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, plural, I'm sorry, singular, of the world. So did he take it away or didn't he take it away? Because we still act like it's there. Is he counting people's trespasses against him or is he not counting his trespasses against him? Because we act like he is. Not we, but you understand, I'm talking about the collective psyche, the collective consciousness. So does John 3.16 say God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son? That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life? Or does it say God was so angry at the world that he gave his only begotten son so that he could punish him so that whoever believes in him would not be punished but have everlasting life? Because if God is ultimately at his core, if his highest value is his morality, then he'll break relationship to enforce his rightness. But if his highest value is love and bringing things at one, he relates very differently, and we relate very differently to him. Go back and read Second Corinthians and watch how Paul says this. You don't have to do it now. Just listen. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. It does not say he, he in order for this other thing to work, he had to be outside of Christ, using Christ to reconcile himself to the world. Isaiah 53 says the chastisement needful to obtain peace for us was on him. Not the chastisement needful to obtain peace for God was on him. So here's the issue. Jonathan Edwards said, and the evangelical church has been saying to one degree to another since, that we're sinners in the hands of an angry God. Luke, throughout the book of Acts, when Peter preached the gospel, go look. I looked at every single sermon from the book of Acts, and I did not find the modern understanding of the cross. In every single case, Peter, Paul, whoever's preaching, Stephen says it this way God sent his son Jesus, whom you have taken. With wicked hands and crucified and put to death the Lord of life. God sent his son and you rejected and crucified. But God has raised him up. So that for Luke, for Paul, for Peter, for the early church, it was not sinners in the hands of an angry God. It was God in the hands of angry sinners who rejected him and put him to death. But God Has raised him up and God is in us imploring you God is not counting your sins against you anymore God's not counting the sins of the world against him he's given an atoning sacrifice and because we are one God is imploring through us that you who are angry you who have rejected him you be reconciled to God and how do you do that you shift your perception that God is not my problem. God is not the one putting cancer on my kids or causing car accidents or causing natural disasters or eager to punish people because of their sins. God is not the problem because he gave you a nature that seems to want to go against what he wants and then insists that you keep it and gets mad at you when you don't. See, we don't think critically through these issues. Basically, by the time we get to John Calvin, that's the issue. You were born with a nature contrary to God, and God's mad about it, and God demands that you keep something that's totally contrary to your nature. But you can't do it, but that's okay, He's still mad at you. But He made provision by choosing some that would be saved and some that wouldn't. That's a mess. The problem is, it's embedded so deeply. If the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? But if you rethink the gospel from the perspective of gnosis, knowledge, and at one it all makes sense. See, under this theory, just the death of Christ matters. Under, the, under the, what we have presented as the gospel that's developed culturally, historically. The only issue is really the cross. That's where the transaction takes place. So how do you make sense of Jesus' teachings? How do you make sense of his, everything in his ministry? But if you lay the frame of at-one-ment over it and say the issue is we've become one with God and he's become one with us and he did it collectively so that we're one with each other, then I begin to love my neighbor as myself. I can look at my enemy and no longer see him as my enemy. I can, I can choose a higher perspective that says we're one. And I don't have to fight over who's right and wrong because that's not the primary issue. at one is the primary issue. And then as a Christian, by following Jesus, by following his teachings, by following his example, see, we're taught to worship his example not follow his example. We make him the exception, not the example. Okay. The idea is by following him, I come into a gnosis, I come into an experiential knowledge of what it means to be one with God. I come into an and out of that union, out of that knowing that I'm every bit... The, oh, that's going to get me in trouble... I'm every bit the Christ that He is the Christ. That the works that He did, I can do also. And greater works than those can I do because He went to the Father. <laughs> it changes the way I live. changes the way I think. Changes the way I speak. Changes the way I walk. Amen? And I realize God's working to bring me at one inside. See, when all the parts of me realize I'm one with God, there's no more conflict. When all the parts of me, when I love the Lord thy God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, I'm reconciled to God. Then I can love my neighbor as myself. It's a, it's a very serious game changer. Last thing I'll say prophetic ministry, the purpose of prophetic ministry is not to tell you things you already know about yourself. There is a gift of prophecy that does that. The purpose of prophetic ministry is to challenge group consciousness to think differently, which is why the prophets are always rejected. And they're always killed because the group doesn't want to shift. But they've deposited the seed into the collective consciousness of the people that generations later will bear fruit. Does that make sense? Let's stand up. Thank you, Lord. Let's just lift our hands, if you're willing, just for just a minute. I want you to think about it. How would your life change if you believed God is completely, God does not just love you, God is completely at one with you. Regardless of how you think right now, regardless of how you live, regardless of whatever your problems are, it's not just that God loves you, God is at one with you. (laughs) And then think about that person that you have an issue with. God put them at one with you. (laughs) What if you live out of that perspective? How much would change? Lord, give us understanding. Give us revelation. Father, I deeply ask anything that I said that was misunderstood or a stumbling block. Lord, I pray that you will just take it and remove it from the minds of my hearers. But, Father, that which is an eternal perspective, that which is truth and that which is the gospel, let it penetrate and work on our lives until we come into the fullness of the revelation of it. And, Lord, I ask this and I trust that you'll do it. In Jesus' name, amen.